It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Las Vegas might be known for the high rollers that it attracts, but it's also become one of the targets of Wall Street's biggest gambles. Take this one, for example. About 10 years ago, two legendary private equity groups, Apollo Global Management and TPG, teamed up to carry out a leverage buyout of one of the biggest and most iconic gaming companies, what was then known as Harrah's. And they financed the purchase by taking advantage of Harrah's real estate. And now an obscure regional casino group out of Reno, Nevada, is set to scoop up what has become the Caesars Entertainment Empire in a deal that's exploiting a pretty similar type of financing. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On this episode, we're looking at Caesars Entertainment and how its vast property portfolio has inspired two jaw-dropping buyouts just 11 years apart. Sajit Indep has covered the many incarnations of the Caesars Entertainment business. He writes for the FT's financial commentary column called Lex. And when I asked him to describe the Las Vegas casino business to someone who has never been to Las Vegas, he started with how it looked at the turn of the century. There's been various like phases of Las Vegas and fads on how the, the casinos organize themselves. There was a time, probably in the years up to the 2000s, where the casino companies were part of larger hospitality and hotel companies. And over time, there was various spinoffs and making them standalone, pure play companies. At the same time, people like Steve Wynn, who were like pure kind of Las Vegas operators, were creating things like Mirage and other fancy high-end properties. I'm Steve Wynn. And this is my new hotel, the only one I've ever signed my name to. There's always been some kind of strain of entrepreneurialism in, in Las Vegas. What do you mean by uh, that? Just people who think they can have the next great property that's going to be better than the last thing, and it'll bring people from around the world, and there's some new gimmick or trend that they can take advantage of, and they will flock to their casino. So Steve Wynn is like the ultimate kind of marketing guy. We're in the harsh southern Nevada desert. Suppose you saw... Polynesia, South Pacific, wouldn't that make people say, could the inside of this place be as cool as the outside? And that would provoke them to go in, and that's how... And again, there's all sorts of business models, and people have tried and succeeded and failed. Caesar's Palace, when it opened in the 60s, was the fanciest resort ever created in Vegas. Obviously, had this whole kind of Roman uh, royalty theme to it, something that had never been seen in Las Vegas. So there's always the next showman who thinks he can build, he or she can build the next great palace or hotel or luxury experience. And and getting back to this period in uh, the early 2000s when it was, I guess, boom time in Las Vegas, who had the casino conglomerate model kind of figured out? 
there's different interesting models. So obviously, Wynn is Steve Wynn is creating like this really luxury experience. But at the same time, uh, Harrah's, which again is the predecessor to Caesars, was the mid tier casino chain. What had been interesting about Harrah's is that they had hired this uh, Harvard Business School professor named Gary Loveman. His idea was that like these casinos on the inside, like they're all the same. So how can I get someone? How can I get customers to be? more willing to come to my casino versus Steve Wynn, who's got the fanciest box on the outside. Right, like what's, uh, our, what's my mousetrap? Exactly. What's, can I build a better mousetrap? Can I get people to pick my casino when the product itself is largely undifferentiated? Here's Gary Loveman speaking with Sajit last year on another FT podcast called Alpha Chat. So the question is, why would a person go into a building that cost $300 million 15 years ago, which is one I had, when they could go 100 meters up the street and go into Steve Wynn's new $1.9 billion spectacular building and play the same games under the same terms. So if you were to ever get anyone to do the former, you would have to offer them some other benefit of that visit that wasn't captured in the opulence of the building. And those were the things we tried to discern by looking at what it is people enjoyed in their visits, how we could customize their experience with us, and build a series of attributes of the visit that that we could replicate and distinguish from the better building down the street. Uh, and so he had this idea that then Harris had all these regional casinos, and he could create this hub and spoke system between the Vegas properties uh, and these regional casinos where customers would collect loyalty points and they would accrue these points and then they could spend all those in Vegas. And so what he was doing was he was creating all, he was collecting all these all this data from from customers on how much they spent and did they spend it on dining or the fancy rooms or uh, gambling and he knew got to know all these customers really well. He knew exactly how to target promotions to them. In the casino business of course, sometimes people win, sometimes they lose, sometimes they lose badly, sometimes they win rather extraordinarily. So why not take the same information and craft it to say, what's the relationship with the guest right now? And how would we motivate them to feel favorably toward us and hence express loyalty in the future? And so Harris is prospering and what it's doing is it's becoming the serial acquirer and it's buying up chains. And once you put a standalone property or chain into the into the total rewards network, its value goes up just by itself 10 or 20%. So there's incredible value from being uh, an M&A consolidator. And so uh, in the early 2000s, it actually acquires Caesars uh, Entertainment, the owner of Caesars Palace. So Caesars Palace now joins the Harris family uh, and it obviously becomes like the flagship property. Between the time he starts as CEO, I think the stock is $14 and he very famously will sell it in 2008 for $90 a share. And so Gary Loveman, he doesn't just sell this to another casino company. He sells it to two big private equity groups, uh, one by the name of Apollo Global Management, the other TPG. Sajit, what are these two firms looking for in a casino company? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's a few things. One, there's a huge explosion in private equity fundraising, particularly amongst like the top tier firms. 2003 to 2007, 8, it was right before the financial crisis. So they're raising big funds. They're actually partnering up and 
you combine those two things, that allows them to buy really big companies. They want to put money to work, and they think these companies can they can operate with like a private equity capital structure. So what does that mean? It means they can support a lot of debt. The interesting rub in Caesars is that they take it a step further. Harrah's at the time like owns most of its real estate, and that real estate can be valued separately, and it also can be borrowed against separately. And so part of the thesis in the deal is ultimately, can we monetize or take advantage of that real estate, which the company itself has not done before. And so how did they do that? They created a a vehicle that was centered on so-called CMBS debts, CMBS being commercial mortgage-backed securities, which is like a a type of asset-backed financing where securitization is like the broad area, right? So the idea is you can chop up a bunch of mortgages and create layers and sell those layers individually from a less risky portion to a most risky portion. And so it's just a way to borrow money targeting a specific set of investors out there who want like real estate finance or property finance and want different piece or buckets of that finance from risky to very risky. And so there's a portion of the debt, several billion dollars, which was put into the so-called CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed security. And that the cost of that was less than like a cash flow loan. So Apollo and TPG have this idea that they can I guess, kind of exploit Caesars real estate in order to just get cheaper cash, cheaper capital. Part of their their business plan or their thesis is we have this clever financing structure which relies on the real estate. Therefore, we can pay a little bit more, get a bigger return. And that was part of their, their secret sauce. So you said that Gary Loveman took over at what was then called Harrah's. Shares were about $14 a piece. And by the time he sells it to TPG and to Apollo, we're talking about $90 a piece. That was in 2006. Then what happened? This deal is announced in December of 2006. So this is really the peak of the pre-financial crisis the market. Top like, of the top. yeah, like the financing markets are really good. All these big deals are getting done, but this deal is not closed till January of 2008. I mean, it takes 14 months, but it's not just any 14 months. The world changes between December 2006 and January 2008. The beginnings of the financial crisis are becoming evident. The financing markets are seizing up. It's being much becoming much harder to borrow money and. If they knew how the world was going to evolve, they almost certainly would have paid less for Caesars or structured the transaction differently or just even thought twice about buying it, period. But they signed a deal and they were more or less stuck and they ended up closing it in January of 2008. So this pretty big deal closes and it's very clear that the economy is starting to soften, right? What's interesting about this deal is that one of the key reasons around it is that uh, these private equity firms, Apollo and TPG, had done a lot of work on the business model of casinos. And they had learned that, uh, if you look at like the 2001 recession, casinos were relatively res- recession-resistant. Like, mm. People still went to Las Vegas. They spent money even when the economy softened. So they thought it was whatever was happening generally in the economy that they could withstand it because people still went to Vegas. Some sort of like recession, like a, some sort of industry insulated from the recession. Exactly. As far as they Yeah, so people modeled. still wanted to go to Vegas. There was enough demand that the hotel rooms were filled and they could withstand typical economic cycle. They did not uh, expect just a col- the collapse of the global economy. And this is, I think, an important lesson is that smart people whose job is to understand the world and who are billionaires because they ostensibly do could not predict what was about to happen. And so then what did happen? And so the market just slowly kind of collapses. And so Atlantic City is bad. Vegas is bad. What's interesting is one of the things we're told is like actual like occupancy 
it falls, but it's not precipitous. Just a different type of customer. You're not getting these in. high rollers coming in for the weekend. Yeah, one of the stories we're told is people are bringing. Like they're cool when they're checking in. They've got coolers full of beer that they're bringing into their rooms. They've got like microwaves, so it's a, a different kind of customer rolling into Caesar's Palace than the high roller from New York or L.A. Uh, who's going to gamble ten thousand dollars in a night. Yeah, the business is not in great shape, and the, the most troubling thing is that the operating company where most of the debt is uh, at Caesar's it has roughly two billion dollars of interest expense, which is like a massive number. And there wasn't that much more EBITDA or profits, cash flow in the business. So any kind of even a small swing would leave them uh, underwater. So the private equity firms then deploy the usual playbook. There's something called amend and extend where you have this debt and you can buy it at a discount in the market. You can renegotiate the terms where you agree to pay a little higher interest if they extend the maturity out several years. You can do these things to create more space and breathing room to try to allow the company to, to turn around. So it's like a, a somewhat of a form of refinancing just to get a little bit more breathing room. Exactly. So you can just tell someone who holds your bonds, I'll pay you another percent of interest and give you some fees. But instead of this being due in 2015, you'll make it due in 2018 or some something down the road. Because today it's a bit easier for me to stump up say, a few more million than it is to tackle this $2 billion. Right. If I own, yeah, exactly. They they do this for a while. The slump is still pretty severe and the debt is just massive. Uh, And Las Vegas is just a different place. Like it's taken a pretty big hit. It's recovering, but not particularly quickly. And so Caesars at the same time, the private equity owners execute a series of transactions where they sell casinos to raise cash. Uh, the interesting thing about these like, asset sales is they are selling the casinos to affiliates of themselves. So they've set up other entities that they own, uh, and they're keeping the casinos roughly in the Caesars network or family. But the actual place in the in the structure that belongs to the creditors, they've sold the casinos, and they're going to use that cash to pay them off, pay interest. But they're selling them. The sale prices just aren't enough to keep Caesars from eventually succumbing to this debt. So they ultimately, after very intense negotiations throughout 2014 with various creditor groups who all have different interests and different views, and by this point, it's mostly hedge funds who have scooped up the debt at big discounts. So the company ultimately files for bankruptcy in, in January of 2015. And the post-crisis world is just a completely different place than I have to imagine, you know, forecasters at TPG and Apollo had even considered back in in 2006 when they were writing that business plan. Sajit, what happens next? And so they file in 2015, and the fight then is about how are we going to restructure this company and who is going to own it afterwards. And how does that go? Very painfully. Very painfully. Uh, So, again, these creditors uh, are all the biggest hedge funds in the world. Elliott, Appaloosa, Oaktree, firms like that who are extremely sophisticated. This is what they do. Yeah, they buy cheap debt and then they engage in very difficult negotiations with private equity firms like Apollo and TBG, who are also very savvy debt investors themselves. Oftentimes, private equity firms will buy discounted debt of their portfolio companies in the market to create leverage and to make money. And so there's there's two things that are going on. So there's this idea about restructuring the company. Like this company is still, it's much smaller than when it was bought out, but 
there's still a lot of profits and there's a real like, casinos aren't going anywhere. Uh, it's just a question of who's going to own this smaller company. Uh, separately, there's this fight about all these asset sales where Apollo and TPG had sold uh, several casinos to affiliates of themselves. And the creditors at this point are alleging that those deals were quote unquote fraudulent transfers. So they had sold them cheaply uh, to themselves to keep the upside uh, and leave creditors with uh, you know, holding the bag effectively. And the key point here is like by the time Caesars comes out of bankruptcy, the business has turned around pretty substantially. And so this is a $31 billion buyout. There's not $30 billion, but there's say $25 billion of value. There's a lot of value here and there's a lot of value to distribute. And so the creditors benefited one because they had successfully had this litigation strategy that convinced the judge that uh, Apollo and TBG had done things that uh, were perhaps improper and that created leverage for them. But this, just the sheer size of the pie was very big now. So they got a, a disproportionate amount of the pie, and the pie is much bigger than anyone ever thought it was. So it ended up being a huge home run for these credit hedge funds who had speculated in 2014 and 2013, yeah, 14, 15. And now this comes out of bankruptcy in 17. So just a huge windfall for these funds. So it's 2017 now. Caesars is basically just emerging from this restructuring fight, from this bankruptcy. How is the casino business itself looking? Uh, and so Caesars comes out uh, of bankruptcy. Vegas is doing well. There's a lot of un- enthusiasm for Caesars uh, at the time. Like uh, again, it's out of bankruptcy. This overhang that had been there for ten years is is gone. Everyone's made a lot of money. So there's a lot of happiness. But there are there are some challenges. So the governance of the com- company is tricky because those hedge funds that had been creditors as a part of their settlement, got equity. And so the board is made up of Apollo and TPG are still there. You've got these hedge funds that are on the board. So there's all, all these kind of factions. There's a new CEO at this point, Mark Frasora, who had been an industrial CEO. The whole business model of, of Vegas had changed, actually, in the last 10 years. And this is actually a very interesting point, and anyone who's familiar with Vegas will probably appreciate this. Gambling is a much less important part of the casino business model now. People go to Vegas now for the entertainment, the, mm, shows, the shows, the restaurants. Yes. It's a family destination. So all these other things besides gambling is what's drawing people to Vegas. So they've had to reorient like what the attractions are at a particular property. And so, ha- so having this like a, you know one time loyal casino customer is not really what's going to make it. Yeah, more. it's important, and it's it's the margins that are very high, but it's just a smaller part of the business now. So people will go to Caesars now, uh, or they did for the Celine Dion. Residency. Uh, residency, yeah, yeah, which just ended recently. That was a huge home run for many years. Uh, one of the biggest home runs for, for Caesars was they owned Planet Hollywood, and Britney Spears was there for several years, and that residency was a, a huge hit for Caesars. It's also pretty competitive generally around the country because there are all these other casinos. There's Native American casinos uh, and all these other formats in every state now seems to have some kind of casino. And so going to Las Vegas or Atlantic City is less of a novelty. And there's always the worry in in these cities anyway that there's too much capacity, too many rooms. There's always some new hotel being built. And most importantly for Caesars, their big strategic whiff under Gary Loveman's tenure was that they did not get a license for Macau in the way Wynn did and Sands did, which is the Sheldon Adelson company. And by Macau, we're talking about this kind of gambling mecca 
of Asia, and it just was not hit by the global financial crisis the same way Las Vegas, Atlantic City were. So not getting a gaming license for Macau, where did that leave Caesars? It would have been a juggernaut if it had gotten into Macau. And last summer, uh, there was a huge worry across all the Las Vegas casinos that 2018 was going to be a bad year. There weren't uh, as many marquee events. And there was a huge – all these companies saw their stock prices drop 10 20 30 percent right about a year ago uh, on worry. There have been all these profit uh, warnings uh, in, in July that were relatively mild. But the market just freaked out. And Caesars had all these hedge funds in the stock, and it was just a complicated story. So that eventually leads to Carl Icahn taking a stake uh, late last year, early this year. Carl Icahn gets into the stock, and he uh, has various experiences in casinos, actually, and he's done well in certain situations. And so he thinks Caesars should be sold. The challenge for Caesars is there's essentially kind of four big uh, casino companies. So it's going to be Caesars, Las Vegas Sands, MGM and win. This is kind of Las Vegas-oriented companies. They're the largest. And so there's not really a natural uh, buyer because Caesars is so big. A couple of parties that approached Caesars about a deal, one is um, Fertitta, Fertitta Family, which is a well-known gaming family, just business family, billionaires. Uh, they own Golden Nugget. Uh, but it's a much smaller company, and that deal is hard to pull off. Uh, meanwhile, there's this company, Eldorado, which is a Reno-based regional casino, not in Las Vegas, but in places like Reno and across the country, kind of medium-tier type properties. Uh, but in the last five years, its stock has gone from $5 to like $50, and its equity value is probably $4 billion, which is much smaller than Caesars. But it's grown pretty quickly. And so Eldorado is interested in making a splash into Las Vegas. They're led by this guy, Tom Reeg, who had been a high-yield debt investor and had been on the board of this company and kind of taken control from the family that had founded it and had been very aggressive in M&A. And that's how they've grown so quickly. They've bought a bunch of regional players and uh, wrung out synergies and created a lot of value that way. And so now this is their marquee transaction. They're actually able to pay a 20 30% premium for Caesars. It's actually extraordinary. There's a much smaller company that no one's ever heard of is buying uh, one of the most iconic companies in the world. A new gaming giant, Eldorado Resorts, is taking over Caesars Entertainment. The merger will create the largest gaming company in the U.S. It will create a giant with 60 casinos across 16 states. The casino operator trading at its highest in almost a year. One of the interesting facets of this is that, uh, like the, the private equity deal from many years before, this relies on the real estate uh, underlying uh, the Caesars empire. So we talked about last time in the in the um, in the, in the buyout uh, they had used uh, CMBS borrowing. Uh, this is an even more advanced version, if you will, of real estate borrowing. What had happened in recent years, a few companies, MGM being one, another company called Penn National, had created a, what are called real estate investment trusts, REITs, which is a, a type of public company structure. REITs are so-called pass-through entities, so they own properties, they collect rent, and they don't pay corporate income tax, which is the key. What they say is, instead of paying corporate in- income tax, we'll distribute all our earnings, uh, or most of our, virtually all our earnings, to our shareholders, and they'll pay personal level tax. And so, for that reason, these so-called pass-through entities like REITs, MLPs, others, partnerships, can avoid corporate tax. And in an era post-financial crisis, where interest rates are very low, anything that pays a dividend, anything that's yield-oriented, uh, have done very well. So. 
couple of all these REITs have been started. And as part of the Caesars restructuring, they created a REIT, uh, which they would call Vici, which kind of makes sense with the, this whole Caesars theme. Uh, and Vici would be created, it would be a REIT that would own several Caesars properties and it would lease it back to the Caesars operating company, who would run the properties and do all the marketing and just run the, the actual underlying business. As a part of the deal, to come up with the, the billions they need to buy, uh, buy Caesars, they're gonna sell some additional properties to Vici. That cash they're getting from selling it will be used to fund the transaction. In exchange now, Caesars has to pay rent, more rent to Vici for those properties. So again, it's a form of leverage. It's potentially risky. Feels like a little bit like the original buyout, but for now, everyone seems to be uh, happy on how, about how it's all worked out. It feels like we might have been here before. Uh, Sujit, I'm curious, does the El Dorado takeover, does this tell us anything about the state of deal-making today, at least as far as uh, the casino business is concerned? I think we feel like we're, we're in our own kind of bull market, like we were in 05 and 06 and 07, where the stock market just keeps going up. So everyone just thinks, I think things will always go up. And so when Caesars came out of bankruptcy, it had, part of that was shedding a lot of debt. Uh, but it's still the new capital structure, the new company, still carried by traditional measures, a fair amount of debt. Uh, and now it feels similar in that it's a new form of debt. It's like rent and lease expense you're paying, but it's a real obligation. And it's based on assumptions on how many people are going to come to Vegas and how much they're going to spend. And you wonder how much slack there is. El Dorado, again, has done very well in wringing out synergies, uh, but they're paying a lot for Caesars. The premium is pretty high, and they've made a very high synergy target. Uh, they're banking on their own casinos being put into this loyalty program and creating kind of revenue synergies that way. But there's always the temptation to think that things will never be as bad as they were that one time, or we've built enough slack into our system and into our models that we can withstand a shock. But you never know. And it's always the temptation to borrow as much as you can because people are, are giving you money and you don't feel bad about it until it's too late. And I should note that you're actually writing a book on this exact story. Um, what is it about the Caesar's tale that intrigues you? I think uh, Las Vegas uh, and Caesar's Palace are areas people love to learn about and focus on. And Vegas Sin City is, is an ever-present part of our pop culture. And, you know, Hangover is set, the Hangover is set at Caesars Palace. Uh, Tony Soprano went to Caesars Palace. So there's no property in Las Vegas like Caesars Palace in terms of its history and its place in, in pop culture, even if though there are, you know, fancier resorts. Uh, I just think that this, uh, this ultimate fight between these private equity firms and these, this hedge fund is one of the seminal stories of the last 10 years. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You can read more from Sajid on Caesars at FT.com. His book on this story is due out in late 2020. And if you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please take a minute to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I'm sure you've heard this one before, but it really does help new listeners find out about the show. You can also email us at BehindTheMoney at FT.com or tweet me at Amy P. Keen. We have had a bit of a sporadic publishing schedule this summer, but we'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.